Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro 1077 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. Live Sundays at noon and now replaying on Thursdays at 4 o'clock. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. I'm Kelly, and I'm an elementary school teacher here in Brattleboro. And I'm Becca. I teach middle school in Springfield, Vermont, and I'm also an alumni of the Spark Teacher Education Institute here in Brattleboro. And we're also here in the studio with Paige Martin. Hello. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Of Democracy Eventually yeah. fame on Some Wednesdays. WBW Cross yeah. Pollination. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also teach, teach. I work at the library. And, and what, d- what time is your shows? It's Wednesday. It's, it's Wednesday right after Democracy Now from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock in yeah. the evening. So people should definitely tune in to Democracy eventually. For some local news and insights. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and this week on your show, you're talking about the... The teachers. Yep. Yeah. The, the new healthcare uh, bargaining that's happening at the state level for teachers uh, in the, um, the NEA throughout the state. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think throughout the show, we'll be able to probably make some connections with unions. Yes. We're going to be talking about the cotton mills. Kelly, you want to say more about the show today? Yeah. So this today, we are going to be talking about mills and factories in the Connecticut River Valley. So Brattleboro, Bells Falls, and wet, towns in Western Mass, like Holyoke, Springfield, countless towns around the Connecticut River Valley were not long ago... Um, teeming with mills and factories that employed thousands of people. And so today we're going to be looking at how the deindustrialization of the area has affected workers and also how the same trends continue and of the interests of the businesses being pushed as the interests of the people um, and how the interests of the businesses make their way into policies, into schools, and things have to conform to business interests. And I think we're also going to spend some time imagining other possibilities of meeting the needs of our community and yeah. yeah. So again, we have Paige Martin here with us in the studio to talk about the research that she's done around the Brattleboro cotton mill. And then we'll be part two will be an interview with Michael Jacobson Hardy, who's a photographer and educator in Western mass, who will be talking about his work there around factories, prisons, and schools. So before we jump in for today, we're going to go to a song. This is Joan Baez. Bread and Roses. And sing Bread and Roses with me. Oh! 
obedience that a sudden sun discloses. For the people here are singing bread and roses, bread and roses. As we go marching, marching, we battle to for men, for Give us roses as we go marching, marching, unnumbered women dead go crying through our singing their ancient call for bread, small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new. Yes, it is bread we fight for. Marching, marching, we bring the greater days. The rising of the women means the rising of the race. No more the drudge and idler tend that toil where one reposes, but a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WBEW L3 Brattleboro 107.7 FM. That was Bread and Roses by Joan Baez. Today we are talking about mills and factories in the Connecticut River Valley. And we're going to start with Brattleboro. So Brattleboro was home to numerous mills and factories, including a sawmill, a paper factory, the SD Organ Company, and the cotton mill, which we still have the cotton mill building, and um, it, today it has a number of businesses in it. And Paige Martin is here um, to tell us more about the history of the cotton mill in Brattleboro. So Paige, can you start by giving us a brief overview of the history of the Fort Dummer cotton mill? Sure. Uh, so the cotton mill opened around 1912 in Brattleboro in the location. Uh, now, like kind of behind the high school, uh, if you if you know that area, it's where the Outer Limits Gym is. They have a lot of artist venues now up in that area, um, and the idea was um, kind of to have it employ basically about 300 people uh, and be like right along the um, river there to actually utilize the Vernon Dam too and use the energy from the Vernon Dam to help run the cotton mill so it brought in kind of two industries because the vernon dam was being built at the same time um and the essentially this is in the larger scheme of new england uh textile industry on the tail end of it if we're looking at it from a historical framework this is closer and closer to where textile industries are being faded out of new england a, a lot of um the textile industries in massachusetts were in the 1800s and stuff like that so this is like on the very end of that historic history but the actual bringing of the um cotton mill here was 
you know, people were super enthusiastic about it as a, as a job and an economic booster. Um, uh, so there was, um, you know, the headlines in the then Brattleboro Reformer um, were like, um, for the newspaper were, quote, enthusiastic for the cotton mill, sentiment unanimously in favor of giving aid which will secure this great industry, or, um, quote, Brattleboro's great opportunity, and then finally, quote, like, cotton mill assured when they finally had the, had the, um, all of the paperwork done and stuff. So the town of Brattleboro paid $450,000 for the mill, or gave the mill company $450,000 to start this mill. They got free land. It used to be a farm that somehow that the town had acquired, um, and the complex, um, and additionally, taxpayers would have to come up with, uh, or people who want to fund the mill through their own personal finances, an additional $120,000 uh, towards the stock of, this, of the mill. Um, and this is all money, speaking of money, in 1900. This is not money today. So, so extrapolate that. Yeah. yeah. Ex so, um, uh, and... Um, the mill was backed by the Brattleboro Board of Trade, uh, which is probably similar to some of our other business and economic development corporations that we have in Brattleboro now, the BDCC, or even the Chamber of Commerce, where you pay money to have services um, and promote businesses. Uh, but it, the Brattleboro Board of Trade was definitely a more closed organization, open, open to any male member of Brattleboro, uh, as long as they could complete an application, which means you have to read and write, you had to be voted on by two-thirds of the board to become part of the, the board, and you had to pay um, an annual due fee of $10, which today is about $275 annually. So three times an Amazon Prime membership. You um, know, um, that's something that really struck me in your paper is yeah. looking at how the um, burden was on taxpayers who weren't necessarily the ones who were going to be benefiting from the profit that was being produced at the factory, but it was sold to them as this is about all of us because we're one community, we're all together in this, and I feel like that's the narrative that happens a lot today around taxes as well. Yeah, uh, and and you know it means too that like the board, which in around 1910 when this mill decision was being made, was comprised of 250 people which was making a decision for 7,000 hmm. people who lived in this community at the time. So you have, uh, no, you know, you have 250 people who, who are uh, wealthy enough to pay for this membership, decide that more jobs would be great. And of course, they're going to be good jobs. But like, are they going to be the ones working at these jobs? Probably not. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's definitely a different kind of a, you know, I mean, and they also have pamphlets out. It was it, at the time of um, a very paternalistic kind of ideology as well as like the New England Purit, like uh, what is it, like uh, WASP, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like kind of uh, you know, we are not only the Board of Trade as the leaders of Brattleboro at this time, but we're the moral and like social standard. We're going to set kind of what should be happening morally in this town and socially and that sounds so familiar Paige. <laughs> <laughs> molding the community through our values kind of so you know i mean it's it's a 
it's 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 like kind of uh, the parallels are are very uh, almost uh, funny, if, almost uncanny. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and you know, at the same time, they they uh, you know they really honed in on the principles of privatism throughout this time. So that is just like this private organization is making decisions for all of these people. And it's like the, the idea is that um, they, they use, I mean, it was much more, I guess, religiously focused at that time, but using that as a way to guide these principles of privatism that were leading to the creation of the mill, uh, you know, while simultaneously uh, pretending that economic development is inherent in this like moral and social good that mm -hmm. they're trying to create. And so that, economic development for who? Yeah, <laughs> well, the question that's not always asked, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, we can talk. Historians have like debunked the idea that privatism is a good idea because of that exact thing, the neutral interest, the non-neutral interest, but specifically the interest um, of a, a market that is, says it's benefiting all members of the community when really it benefits a specific portion of the community. Yeah. Um, and so Paige, once the mill got going, um, you write a little bit about the working conditions. I was... Um, surprised to learn that the mill did run 24 hours a day. So we're just wondering about who, a little bit more who worked there, what was working there like, mm -hmm. where did they live? So the mill location, as I was saying, was at Fort Dummer, um, in the, which is now on the south side of town, but was, you know, we easily can get there now, but was just distinctly away from downtown. Mm which I to think is important. To hide it, you think? Or what? Was it to hide it a little bit? A little bit, but also there's where they were building all the tenement housing and housing for all the people who worked there. I mean, it was a mill community. I mean, Brattleboro wasn't necessarily a specific mill town. There were other industries that Kelly mentioned earlier, but mm -hmm. the community for the mill was up in that area of Brattleboro. They had all their grocery stores. They had their, uh, there was a pool room pool, meaning uh, billiards. <laughs> Not a swimming pool for <laughs> the workers to go in. Uh, music venues and stuff like that, all up in that area. Whereas the majority of people on the Brattleboro Board of Trade lived in West Brattleboro okay. or in North Brattleboro. So it was distinctly away and separate from these community members who were making decisions. Mm. And then where they decided to put it was distinctly away from that. Uh, in addition to the fact that they granted them no taxes on the building for 10 years. But um, the working conditions, I mean, they, it was a 24-hour establishment, um, uh, and, and part of their ploy to bring people in was also advertising Brattleboro as a um, men and women who are happy and contented and loyal to local institutions that won't cause any issues or, or st strike, right? So yeah. that's part of the bargaining chip for, for starting this position um it was before the era of like modern air conditioning and stuff like that and uh obviously it was very hot i had someone talk about that especially in the steam room which was one of the areas it was it was like very hot stifling I working conditions i mean it's not exactly super pleasant um multiple reports of people not having actual lunch breaks this is also in the 19 you know, 10s and 20s, so there's no Fair sta Standard Labor Act yet, 
there's no uh, any kind of like eight hour work day except Massachusetts had some of these things just because of their history of labor organizing. Um, but Vermont, obviously a different state, and there's obviously no national unified wage, work hour, work week, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. conditions. Um, and so people would work 12 hour days in this mill because you could make more money if you worked tw- two shifts as opposed to one shift. And, right. and then especially um, while the mill was operating during World War II, um, the amount of money that you made was solely based on the amount of product you provided. They, they changed their manufacturing in World War II from fine linens and cloths to bandages. Uh, mm. And one of the women I interviewed, her job was as a secretary to go around and count the number of bandages each woman made at her workstation to be able to base her pay off of the amount of things she created for that week. You know, that's so interesting thinking about the mills and factories along the Connecticut River and how the production priorities shifted during the war. In Springfield, they like in Springfield, Vermont, they claimed themselves as like a top um, number seven on Hitler's bomb list because they were producing a little piece of a weapon that was being used in World War II. And in uh, Waterbury, Connecticut, they're also like the pride is like, oh, we were producing these things to support the war effort. So it's interesting hearing you say that about the cotton mill here. Yeah, it, I mean, it was a, uh, I mean, during that time, there was egregious uh, like labor, like non-protections. Yeah. It, it, it ran, uh, violations ran rampant because the whole thing was efficiency and productivity. And it was one of the reasons why there were so many mill closures in New England during that time, because the, the, all the contracts were government contracts at that time. Government contracts wanted to work with big businesses because big businesses could be more efficient. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't efficient, you weren't making things fast enough. So essentially, hmm. through 1940 and 1944, the government, the federal government gave over uh, the equivalent of well over a trillion dollars today in military contracts, and 30% of that money only went to 10 companies. Wow. So if you think about 100%. that in terms of like the pressure companies were under to gain those government contracts and then therefore the pressure workers were under to meet those contracts because that was the only money that was available. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking like right out of the Great Depression, people aren't making a lot of like fine linens. Um, so uh, that's kind of like part of the issue. There were no safeguards for any of these employees. Um, and there were a lot of pressure from both uh, a nationalistic point of view and also then like a uh, how am I going to make enough money to live point of view. So, Paige, can you talk about the strike of 1955 in the sure. union? Yeah. So uh, like all, um, all good things come to an end. So um, uh, we were talking kind of talked about the thread of the like um, lack of national labor laws. And so this super influenced the different regions throughout the United States having better or worse working conditions. And the South um, was starting to industrialize and they did not have the labor history that the North did or the labor laws that the North did. And so textile industries started fleeing New England to set up textile industries in the South because they could 
pay their workers significantly less for the same product. Um, it's a, I mean, it's the story of capital mobility. We're seeing it today with, you know, yeah. from NAFTA to the TPP, all of these things where it's just cheaper to produce stuff somewhere else. Um, and you don't necessarily, textiles for a while, they were tied to uh, New England due to needing uh, the dams and but and the rivers and stuff, but, but due to electricity and stuff, you no longer needed that, and you don't have any location necessity. You can move anywhere, move to where the cheaper labor costs. So the lack of a national uh, labor movement essentially created a problem where people in the South could be paid uh, 15 cents to less per hour for the same position as someone in the north. And that was at a unionized mill in the south. So wow. at a non-unionized mill, it was 23 to 25 cents per less per hour. Um, and so in 1955, the company Berkshire Hathaway, which bought uh, Berkshire Fine Spinning in 1953, uh, told workers that they were going to cut their wages, not even like, we can't pay you more this year, we're going to cut your wages um, and cut your benefits. Wow. Um, and the workers went on strike to prevent cutting their their pay. Uh, uh, and um, the president at that time uh, of the, uh, the Textile Workers Union of America, Emile Reeve, was very active in all of the 15 Berkshire Hathaway mills that were in the area of Vermont and Massachusetts, um, trying to say, like, you know, the, the reason you're moving is because you want to make more money. The reason you're moving isn't because you need, like, uh, you need that money. It's because you want to make more money. So you could keep providing these jobs to workers, but you're choosing to make more money. Um, and then... Um, they finally, after a two-week walkout strike, they came to an agreement where their wages would not be cut and their benefits would not be cut. It would just stay stagnant. But then um, the company just relocated to the south. And it took them about two or three years, but uh, they moved all of their companies to the south in that time frame. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, really struck me about your paper is talking about the class-based assumptions that are made. Um, and the narrative that's told in Springfield, Vermont, is that the factories closed because the workers were greedy mm -hmm. and they wanted more. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, and that's actually the same narrative that I was taught about. The reason for Detroit's collapse was that the workers ha wanted to keep getting more, and they weren't willing to take uh, pay cuts when the um, owners or when the businesses were struggling, yeah. which is very different than what you just, just described. And um, I feel like part of that narrative came out of, uh, at least in Brattleboro, came out of the board and trade as depicting the business conditions as like, things are great. We don't have labor problems. We don't have poverty. We don't have unemployment. Everyone can find work. And kind of making it seem like everything is conflict-free. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the Board of Trade and just the ideology that was used to both describe workers and describe business. Yeah, so the the idea, I guess, is is interesting because they that's how they advertise Brattleboro in general. Like, we are a community of 
because um, there was also a, a fear on the Board of Trade that having this mill here would bring immigrants to their community. Mm. That was a big, a big uh, fear. And it did. And it did. <laughs> uh, because there were jobs, and they were year-round jobs. They weren't seasonal jobs, which is most of the work in Vermont at that time. Yep. Uh, and, uh, but they also simultaneously stressed, like, Brattleboro is a neat community with people who care about their lawns and their gardens, uh, which is something they said in some of their pamphlets advertising Brattleboro as a, as a community people that it's okay to have an industry open up here because we're different. We can keep our streets clean, clean. and keep the poor people off of them. Yeah, yes, yes. Or even you don't see the poor people because we put them in the tenement houses by the mill. Yeah. Uh, you know, and even, I mean, even those houses in the brochures, they did advertise, like, each house has three bedrooms and a parlor and, like, a, you know, a kitchen and a living room. So is this this idea that somehow all of these uh, if we say it enough it'll be true I don't know I don't know what what the um, how that was viewed as the people who worked in that community I mean I think for the most part it was just um, uh, literature for people trying to in- get people to invest right. in Brattleboro in this mill um, because they didn't mind out of state investors they just didn't want people out of state coming in to work at the places they were which is another they didn't mind out of country investors they just didn't want out of state people or laborers coming into the community which is all class-based right right um and then i mean more to your point about the the springfield thing the the whole thing was them they were our all of these people were already getting paid inadequate wages for the cost of living and so essentially, the mills were saying, we can't pay you enough to live, so you guys should just deal with that. We're actually going to cut your wages. Um, but, you know, if you, can't, if you can't pay people enough to live, then you shouldn't, people shouldn't subsidize your right to own a business. Um, <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> uh, so, but, I mean, that's the, the textile workers uh, the union was just saying we aren't asking for like, you know, vacation. We're just asking for enough money so that we can afford these houses to live in and and for enough food. And it's just it seems like it's always like oh these that that was the art language around the West Virginia teachers strike that happened so recently. Like they're being greedy. They're asking for more. They like, well they're just trying to get enough money to live. Like they work two or three jobs. Like that's not that's insane to do that to people so Paige what happened to the workers when the cotton mill closed um some of them relocated most of them because they couldn't find work here I mean you're unskilled laborers uh one of the women um or the families I interviewed the Corbiel family uh their father um got a job actually as the janitor at the Green Street School when when the mill closed um but most of them could no longer live here so they had to move uh and some people found businesses or found jobs in other mills uh one of the Corbeil family one of their uncles uh went to go work at the Adams in Adams Massachusetts at the mill setting up machinery Mm -hmm. um for a mill there but it, it essentially meant people had to like some of the insane um, 
headlines during that time, again, were like, um, uh, on, in the reformer, for editorials or stuff were, quote, strike or suicide, mm -hmm. which is like an insane headline, like that you would be, so Des, you would either like leave if they closed, you're just left like in a very desperate situation. Yeah. Um, or textile strike tragedy and, um, you know, survival or extinction, which shall it be? So talking about these people who have built their life and livelihood and have moved here for this position suddenly have no income and, and have to relocate. So, yeah. yeah. So Paige, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think we'll go to a song break next and you're welcome to stay for the rest of the show, but I don't know if there's anything else you want to add at this moment. Uh, sure. Well, I guess one other quick thing, I just, we were kind of trying to draw little uh, parallel comparisons, but the, this, this kind of like pro-business attitude still occurs in Brattleboro today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, this most recently with GS Precision, which employs over 300 people in our community. Um, and they were going to expand a few years ago, and the CEO um, was thinking about moving to New Hampshire, uh, but because uh, they, you know, have less prop regulations right, right over the border. Oh. Um, you know, we had a building design in New Hampshire. Um, and then the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation swooped in and helped them start thinking about actually staying in Vermont and keeping those jobs here, which is great. But it's also like this, this CEO <laughs> who employs all these people apparently didn't care enough about all these people. I mean, I don't know him, but he was just going to move his business like f far away across the river i mean i guess if it was just in hinsdale that would be one thing but it clearly like there's a lack of, of connection there and i just don't understand um then somehow it's on brattleboro to come up with all these ideas for how this company could stay rather than this company actually investing in this community for the sake of employing people and understanding what those jobs mean to those families um yeah. so i mean and and through that what happened was the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation got a bunch of grants and loans and tax credits for GS Precision. This uh, business that simultaneously um, got all these things because of their threat to leave the area. Mm -hmm. And similar tax credits were found for the Commonwealth Dairy. And some of these tax credits are coming from when Vermont um, Entergy closed mm -hmm. they had to give a certain amount of money to the town mm -hmm. um, as uh, uh, to give out as grants for other businesses who are looking to develop in this area okay um, so that some of that money is coming directly from the company closure and the company had to pay out because of their closure in the in the state uh, but you know it seems it's we're still in this business where we're bargaining at high high levels to keep businesses in this area, uh, to keep jobs that employ a lot of people, and you know, from at a at a at a wage that people want to work at. And how much does the CEO of GS Precision make? Do you that, know? That's a question. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, like, how much do people pay for property taxes for Brattleboro versus 
understanding that some places get taxed you mean do do individuals get tax breaks do tax like credits like oh you don't have to pay taxes this year like brattleboro property taxes are extremely high they are yeah and then for the brattleboro to give money to businesses who don't pay or have a tax break to keep jobs here i don't know it's i mean it's super complicated i wouldn't want to see gs precision leave because what would that mean like we don't have i mean there are definitely other solutions we don't have i don't think enough structures in place to help support that yet as a community we're definitely we have we have not gotten that far in terms of coming up with other creative ideas uh so yeah, and I think partly like the long connecting the history of workers and laborers to those who own is um, you can see the same groups of people today in society and they might look different and they might be doing different types of work. Um, but it's still that same struggle around meeting a few people's needs, like there are their wants of like accumulating more profit is actually going against having people live healthy and decent lives who are the workers and i think that question is not brought into the conversation enough yeah and so it's really interesting and to read more and to learn more about the research that you've been doing and i mean and you can talk about it like on a large i mean the commonwealth dairy was competing with a bunch of different states and to come here with their jobs and they're expanding, but they got all these benefits. They got uh, Brattleboro, Vermont is contributing a $250,000 grant and tax stabilization. I don't know what tax stabilization means, but it sounds a lot like tax break. So um, it's sort of like welfare for businesses. It is welfare for mm-hmm. businesses. Yeah. And I mean, that that's the, the, you know, much bigger national threat is Amazon decided they were going to have a new store and, Places are competing and giving money to Amazon to come have a store. Wow. And Amazon paid $0 in national taxes this year. In order to make some people rich, you got to make everyone else poor. And they pay their workers abysmally. So, I mean, yeah. it just is like, uh, where's the, where do we say that's enough? Like, yeah. you have jobs, but you can't afford to live. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, Paige, as you're talking, I, I'm sh- I feel like I've... I feel like I'm listening to you talk about 2018 because it feels so similar. I mean, the same discussion around Vermont Yankee around jobs leaving and people's resistance to that. And I think about CNS grocery that employs so many people, but it's like a difficult job. It's exploitative. Um, wages are low. Labor. It's hard mm-hmm. labor. So um, I think we're going to make more connections later in the show. Yep. Um, we're going to go again. We've had Paige Martin on the show with us today from a co-host of Democracy Eventually and also the Children's Librarian at Brooks Memorial. Thanks so much for being here with us. Sure, sure. Hopefully we can make a children's book about this too. That would be wonderful, (laughs) right? Uh, We're going to go to Sweet Honey in the Rock, Are My Hands Clean? I wear garments touched by hands from all over the world. 35% cotton, 65% polyester. The journey begins in Central America in the cotton fields of El Salvador. In a province soaked in blood, pesticide sprayed workers toil in a broiling sun, pulling cotton for $2 a day. Then we move on up to another rung, Cargill, a top 40 trading conglomerate 
takes the cotton through the Panama Canal. Up the eastern seaboard, coming to the U.S. of A for the first time. In South Carolina, at the Burlington Mills. Joins a shipment of polyester filament, courtesy of the New Jersey Petrochemical Mills of DuPont. DuPont strands of filament begins in the South American country of Venezuela. Where oil riggers bring up oil from the earth for six dollars a day. Then Exxon, largest oil company in the world, upgrades the product in the country of Trinidad and Tobago. Then back into the Caribbean and Atlantic seas to the factories of DuPont on the way to the Burlington Mills in South Carolina to meet the cotton from the blood-soaked fields of El Salvador. In South Carolina, Burlington factories hum with the business of weaving oil and cotton into miles of fabric for Sears, who takes his bounty back into the Caribbean Sea, headed for Haiti this time. May she be one day soon free. Far from the Port-au-Prince Palace, third world women toil doing piecework to see the specifications for three dollars a day. My sisters make my blouse. It leaves the third world for the last time, coming back into the sea to be sealed in plastic for me, this third world sister. And I go to the Sears department store where I buy my blouse on sale for 20% discount on my hands Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today we are talking about mills, factories, and the relationship between business and workers. This segment of our show will deal with mills and factories in western Massachusetts. We just talked about the cotton mill in Brattleboro. Um, and, we, and we'll also bring in the ways that prisons and schools are connected to um, these businesses. We interviewed Michael Jacobson Hardy from Florence, Massachusetts. Let's go to the interview. So we are figuring out uh, putting the interview on um, on live. And Michael Jacobson Hardy is a he's a photographer and an educator in Western Massachusetts. And he actually recently um, came to the Spark Teacher Education Program in Brattleboro to talk about his work photographing mills and schools in Western Mass and the connections. And he has a book and uh, it's called The Changing Landscape of Labor. And one of the reasons that we wanted to interview him was of not only that the connections between factories and mills in Vermont and Massachusetts are obviously so similar. I mean, they're, they, they're, the institutions do the same things, function in the same ways. Um, but he also connects 
prisons and schools. So are we ready, Becca? Yeah, we're going to try this again. You know, one of the things about being on the radio is that I'm always challenged by the technological (laughs) aspects of making sure we can get everything going. So let's try this again. This is Michael Jacobson Hardy. Yeah, great. And so... Kelly, I'm going to try to play it from my phone because it seems like the internet is kind of going in and out for our computer right now on the oh. WBW. So um, could you maybe just talk briefly about um, like some of the connections that you see? Between yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that really sticks out to me from what Paige said is about Vermont Yankee. Um, and... So, and Vermont Yankee has had so much support in Vernon, obviously, which is where it's located because, and Vermont Yankee, for those of you who don't know, is the um, nuclear power plant in Vernon. And Vermont Yankee has had so much support in Vernon because so many people in Vernon are employed there. (laughs) Are we ready? I think we're ready. I, I apologize for that. Here we go. Okay. So in doing your work as a photographer... You started to work in the factories, which eventually led to taking photography of prisons and schools and, from my understanding, coming up with a collection that makes connections between these. Right. And so I'm wondering, specifically for the factories, let's start, what stands out to you about the stories that you learned and people's conditions working in the factories? Sure. Well, for one thing... uh this was a family for many people. Uh, they got to know each other. They they worked their lives in these industries. Uh, and when they started to close um, in the 1950s and then uh, really further close, uh, as I was photographing, I, these workers became displaced. And mm. there was a tremendous impact on the local economies as a result. Holyoke uh, lost uh, 220 teachers in their public schools, Um, and uh, this partly was a result of the fact that there wasn't the money to pay for these teachers, and this became a huge social problem. Um, In addition, you have the the aspect of race and racism. Uh, When the Puerto Ricans came in, they weren't received the way the French Canadians were in the mill town of Holyoke. Uh, because the economy was so bad, uh, and, and so many of these mills, there were 30 of them at one time, were closing, that uh, people blamed the Puerto Ricans for this. Instead of you know blaming somebody else, they ended up blaming the very people that came in to find the same jobs that they and their ancestors received when they came here. So what became of that was something that we call racism. And... Uh, People didn't want these these people in the towns, and so when it came time to uh, voting for uh, education, uh, they voted for trash collection and police over uh, funding for the school systems. They didn't care about these kids, um, and so the issue of race really played out, and I think this is something that happens in other parts of the country um, as well, and so I really got to study basically the impact of you know capital, capitalism, Factories closing on uh, the people in a in a, a city and, and and then racism, schools um, and um, you know had tremendous impact on the young people, and 
I started photographing in the public schools in Holyoke. Um, and what I learned from a lot of the young people was they were going to visit relatives in prisons, in jails, during, you know, school vacation weeks. And I said, you, you, you know, this is amazing to me that, you know, you, you hear this sort of thing. And so I decided to do a project on prisons and jails and follow, actually, some of these some of these people and their families. And uh, I started out with a book called The Changing Landscape of Labor, which was a book on New England factories. Then I did a book on uh, the Holyoke Public Schools called Facing Education. Um, and uh, finally, I was in Massachusetts prisons. <laughs> And I spent several years uh, photographing in the prisons and jails and really making the connections. You know, what happens when there aren't jobs? What, how, does imp how does racism impact upon people? Who's in the prisons? And really what I learned was most of the people in prisons were either poor people or people of global, you know, global majority, people of color. Um, and, you know, the kinds of crimes that brought them in, most of it was related to drugs. Um, you know, 90% of the prison population was, were, you know, were, were brought in as a result of drugs. Um, so you've got people that, you know, start out wanting to work, wanting to, to do good, and the system grinds them down, and we wind up with people incarcerated. Um, and there's, there's definite connections between the, these three um, institutions, and that's really what my work is about, is making those connections. Mm. I was wondering if you could say more about um, how the best place to learn about capitalism and capital is in the factories. Sure. And what you see, like the underpinning, I guess, to the capitalist society today. Right. Well, what was happening in the factories when I was there was they were closing. And why were they closing? The owners found that it was cheaper to export, you know, the labor overseas or down south and, you know, and build new mills, new factories where it was, where there was cheap labor. Okay, so that's really what it was all about. Mm -hmm. uh, these jobs that uh, were unionized jobs in Holyoke in western Massachusetts suddenly disappeared. And what they did was they crush these unions. Now, the unions were bringing up, you know, the, the wages. Uh, people were being paid a decent wage, and they could live well. But as soon as the owners figured this out, and they didn't want to have anything to do with the unions, they just closed, you know, closed the factories, moved them down south overseas, which, again, has had this impact on American workers. And this is really what's what's triggering a lot of what's happening in 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 the political situ situation today is people are just angry that there aren't jobs that there there's not employment and so who do they blame they find somebody to blame and often the people they blame are the people that are coming into the country you know mm. immigrants people of color um, there's this finger pointing and that's this is how this is how a crushing capitalist system operates on people and really, what I learned is it's kind of in a stage where it's not working for people any longer. Mm -hmm. And so people are beginning to question what kinds of systems will work, because right now our system is not, is not providing employment, you know, jobs for people. Um, and the impact of that is uh, racism and, uh, and then the prisons, which also function within those three institutions.
Mm. And I even think about what kind of jobs are being provided for people. If most of the manufacturing jobs are somewhere else, it becomes part of the changing landscape of the uh, service work or work in prisons. You know, in Springfield, Vermont, they closed down the factories and then brought in a prison of course. into the town. Right. And so I'm wondering about the trend of, that you see around deindustrialization and increased incarceration. Sure. Well, towns are hurting. They need jobs. And when, you know, the possibility of building a new prison comes in, they grab it. Uh, in Spring, you know, in Springfield, uh, when I was photographing down there, uh, they built a women's prison. Um, because uh, women were having to go to Framingham, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and they were being separated from their children. So, you know, what did Springfield do? They built a $75 million prison so that wow. it would house women. Uh, you know, there's, there's tremendous money involved in the, in the prison economy. Um, and prisons now are becoming privatized, which basically means that everybody's making money off of them. So right. that's a that's a huge situation that we need to have a have, have a much better look at. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would like to add today while we have you on the phone about your work and maybe what you hope to see for the Connecticut River Valley in the future. Sure. Well, um, again, I think. I think we have to look at the issue of race and social class in this country, and it's something that we don't want to look at, um, and it's something we have to look at. Um, We have to build some kind of a system that includes everyone, and my work really is about having a, a look at that, study how it's now working, and then to try to come up with some kind of solutions, and I think my faith right now is in young people, you know, the idea of young people organizing, uh, wanting better lives, wanting, you know, wanting it to go to go better. Um, and I think there's going to ha- be a lot of self-examination, and I think a lot of work is going to have to be done around social class. What does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be middle class? What does it mean to be owning class? How does this all work? Mm-hmm. Who's benefiting from this and who gets hurt? And I think we have to look at the issue of class in this in this society, and of course the issue of race, and they're all tied together. Um, and I'm hoping that the work done in factories, schools, and prisons will generate a conversation around social class in this country. And and I think we'll have to examine that further. Thank you so much, Michael Jacobson Hardy has been with us on the phone talking about his photography, and we'll link to some of your work online on our Facebook page at Indigo Radio. Very good. Thank you. It's been nice talking with you. Have a good day. You too. Benefiting from this and who gets hurt. You're listening to WVEWLP Brattleboro. 107.7 FM, we are your community radio station. And as your community radio station, we rely on you, the community, to help keep us going. If you would like to help support us, please go to wvew.org and click on the big blue donate button that says support WVEW. You can also put your spare change in any of the donation jars located around downtown Brattleboro at Zephyr Designs, 
Everyone's Books, Twice Upon a Time, In the Moment, Beadniks, Harmony Underground, Turn It Up, and The Hotel Pharmacy. WVEW thanks you for your support of this station. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. I'm Kelly, and I'm here with Becca in the studio talking about mills and factories in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, so, Becca, in the last few minutes of the show we have, I was, uh, I think we had talked about, we spent so much of this show talking about the ways that the relationship between the owners of businesses and the workers of the businesses are not the relationships we want in the world because the workers are always the ones left without the things that they need and they're at the mercy of the whims of businesses. And so uh, what do we imagine? What could be different? I mean, I was just thinking um, about how even the narrative that has been formed comes from the owning class. And so I'm wondering about how do we go beyond this idea of what's good for business to really imagine a world where people have what they need to live. And it's not at the concession of somebody else's needs. And that's kind of um, forcing us to go beyond, forcing us to understand history and analyze the conditions in which we live as not inevitable, but as something that has been created and as something that can be changed. And so I think about, um, you know, the work um, the last thing that Michael Jacobson Hardy said was uh, the work in factories, schools, and prisons need to be questioning and need to be thinking about um, how we can really make uh, this society built around supporting one another and caring for one another. Also, I feel like one thing that's often left out in this narrative of jobs, 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 yes, we want jobs, this business gives people jobs, even hypothetically, if these businesses stayed here and their um, the wages went up with inflation, ultimately, the wages that people are getting paid, the amount of work that they're doing, the type of work that they're doing, they're not in control of. They're, those conditions are being determined by the businesses themselves, and in order to make a profit. And I would like to see a model where people work to meet the needs of the communities that's not for the profit of a business or of the owners of a business and where the workers are the owners of, a, of the business and they control the conditions of their labor. Because there's so much, there's so, of course there's nothing wrong with uh, physical labor and working with your hands and working with your body. And in fact, I think we should all be doing that but who controls the conditions of that work? It actually really makes me think of um, uh, the Zapatistas are the um, indigenous group of people in southern Mexico who in 1994, they held they had a takeover on the first day of NAFTA. And they essentially created sovereign areas. The state Mexico does not recognize them as sovereign, but they um, see themselves as sovereign from, this, from the state of Mexico in order to create the kind of world that they want. And when I was there, I visited, they have a shoe factory mm-hmm. and there is no owner of the shoe factory. There are a group of people who work there. They decide when they're going to work. They decide how they're going to buy the materials. They decide um, who's going to do what, and they make shoes together and they sell them. And 
to me, I just like one little glimmer of the possibilities for a world in which the people who are doing the work own and control the things that they work with and the product that they create. Mm-hmm. And I really do feel that if we had a strong labor movement in this country, that it would also influence uh, the ways in which the U.S. is supporting war and exploitation everywhere else in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so that brings me, I was uh, talking to a woman in Gaza this morning who was, we're trying to plan a Skype conversation with my students and her students. And she said, oh, we can't do May 1st because we have worker, like that's International Workers' Day. We have that as a holiday here. And I was like, wow, even like something that simple seems so far reaching in this country to celebrate May 1st as International Workers' Day. And although we don't have the day off in school, we are going to be having a uh, Brattleboro Solidarity is hosting a reading of Howard Zinn's Voices of People's History. And this is going to be a time where we focus on labor, labor struggles in Vermont. This will be May 1st from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Brooks Memorial Library. And we hope that everyone can join us. Again, that's Voices of Working People. If you want to look it up on Facebook, there's more information about the event. Um, and so I think, Kelly, that there's so much more to always talk about. And I would love to do a follow-up show to continue the <laughs> conversations. Um, we're going to go out today with Billy Bragg. Which side are you on? Thanks for listening. <laughs> This government had an idea and parliament made it law Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore And which side are you on boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on boys? Which side are you on? set off to join the picket lines but together we cannot fail we got stopped by police at the county line they said go on boys or you're going to jail and which side are you on boys which side are you on which side are you on boys which side are you It's hard to explain to a crying child why her daddy won't go back. Said the family suffer, but it hurts me more to hear a scab say, Sod you, Jack. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Follow my conscience and I'll do whatever I can. But it'll take much more than a union law to knock the fight 
out of a working man And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? This is Eugene Newman, DJ of No Boundaries Radio, a show for you late-nighters who want to hear jazz and music that's fresh and creative. Tune in on Tuesday nights from 10 to midnight, WVWLP, Brattleboro. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted